Hello, and welcome back to the Sinobabble podcast. Today's episode is an addition to the Modern China series. We're going to be talking about a deep-rooted problem in China, that of frequent and recurrent academic scandals. This is a topic that's interesting to me because despite having just completed a PhD, I've always been wary of entering the field as a full-on professor or researcher or lecturer, especially because I am in the field of Chinese studies. There are many reasons why I'm not sure a career in academia is for me, most of which I'm not going to go into today. But one of those reasons does revolve around the problem of ethics when it comes to doing any sort of research in or about China. I hinted in a recent podcast at the type of problems encountered when doing Chinese studies, but to be honest, I only really scratched the surface. The story of a conference I attended where a panel on Xinjiang was cancelled due to the mainland Chinese historians refusing to speak alongside a Western panellist discussing human rights in modern Xinjiang is interesting, but that's really only the beginning. What I want to talk about in this episode is not just problems of studying China, but also studying with China, using Chinese funding, or having any sort of Chinese partnership. China is no stranger to corruption or scandal, and if anything, academia is sort of a microcosm of the wider issues that pervade Chinese business and society as a whole. There's a whole slew of problems from exam fraud to admissions bribery to misappropriation of funds, but today we're not talking about academia as an education body, but rather as a professional field. So we're sticking to the research side of things. Today I want to discuss some of the most prominent examples in three different categories. Fake research, deleted research, and conflict of interest. But before we get into any of those, I think it will be helpful to try and understand what exactly the root of the problem is. Just how did corruption in Chinese academia get so bad? So the general root cause, I believe, may have something to do with attitudes in Chinese society towards cheating, corruption and copying in general. The Chinese attitude towards copying or cheating is very different from that of Western countries for a number of reasons. Firstly, the Confucian tradition insists upon the idea of copying from the masters as the best way to learn. Chinese academic and philosophical history is uniquely bland when compared to something like the Enlightenment period in the West, because most of it is merely just building and expanding upon what already exists, instead of innovating new ideas and concepts. This is why China is sometimes seen as a more stagnant culture, but it's more that their ideas and attitudes are rigid in comparison with, say, Europe after the 1700s. So copying is part of traditional learning, and the ability to memorise large parts of the traditional canon for imperial examinations until 1905, and even well into the 20th century, was considered an important skill. Secondly, even after the founding of the PRC in the mid-20th century, there was still no concept of private ownership. So the idea of IP law or trademarking an idea or invention just didn't exist because if you made something, then it belonged to the collective, to the nation and everyone in it. So when you get tech companies complaining about Chinese firms stealing their designs or ideas, despite the fact that China is required to comply with international IP regulations, it's much more difficult to enforce in China because the government doesn't have a vested interest in protecting international firms and it has a lot of interest in developing China's economy. 
Unfortunately, this attitude towards growth and development extends to companies and businessmen who are happy to scam and even hurt members of the public in order to make a profit. This willingness to take advantage of one's fellow countrymen stems, I believe, from two places. The first is China's get-rich-quick attitude, which took off after the opening up period in the 1980s, and also partly the concept of guanxi. Guanxi, loosely speaking, is a sort of network or connection that you may have with someone that can help you open doors to get a job or to start a business. It's a bit more complex than that, and I'll probably talk about it more in another episode, but the important thing to remember here is that it also works the other way. In other words, if I don't know you, why should I care if you get scammed or injured or even die as a consequence of something that I do? This is why we see continuous scams in China, for example, uh, fake baby powder or poisonous formula or just generally different fake food products being produced. This is quite an important concept when we talk about academic scandals, especially when we talk about fake scientific papers that may have a negative impact on international scientific development, but a positive impact on someone's career. Finally, we come to the general problem of corruption in China, particularly in politics. You may or may not be familiar with China's anti-graft campaign, which was launched in 2012 by Xi Jinping in order to root out corruption in Chinese politics. If you don't know anything about it at all, I suggest you listen to another episode that I did entitled The End of Presidential Term Limits in China, where I discuss it all in a bit more detail. All we need to know for now is that in the first half of 2020 alone, there have been around 240,000 sanctions against cadres for corruption, with crimes ranging from embezzlement, bribery, nepotism and the hiring of prostitutes. Corruption is a big problem that has been developing since the late 1970s and shows no signs of slowing down in China despite the anti-corruption campaign. Just a really quick aside, this all goes some way to explaining why the social credit system is being introduced in China. The purpose of the social credit system is to establish a sort of record for individuals, businesses and the government to be tracked and evaluated for trustworthiness. In other words, they want to keep an eye on what people and businesses are doing to make sure that they're not cheating their fellow countrymen. Its aim is to help create a more harmonious society by stamping out not just blatant fraud and bad business practices, but also antisocial behaviour such as littering, queue jumping and jaywalking. It also extends to public officials and party members in an attempt to tackle China's political corruption problem. Going back to academia, all of these broader issues are amplified by two additional factors, that of the principle of publish or perish, and the other centred on the idea of China becoming a leader in the global scientific community by 2050. As in the West, publishing in academic journals is extremely important for career advancement in China. However, in China, in many universities, PhD candidates are required to publish in high-level journals just to graduate, and when it comes to promotions, many positions are decided based on the number of publications a professor has and in what kinds of journals. 
Add to that the Communist Party's goal to shift the focus of national production from quantity to quality, and you have a lot of pressure on the nation's scientists to create a knowledge-based economy in which scientific development accounts for at least 60% of economic growth in order to turn China into a moderately prosperous society by the middle of the century. Okay, so now we understand the roots of corruption in Chinese academia a bit better. With all of this in mind, let's take a look at the three major problems within the field and some of the biggest scandals in each area, starting with the problem of fake papers. I'd venture a guess and say that the publication of fake papers is probably the most common issue within modern Chinese academia. Between 2012 and 2016, China had 276 fake peer-reviewed papers retracted, ranking number one in the world ahead of Taiwan, which had a comparably small 73 papers retracted. In 2017, Quartz reported that more than 50% of all the articles retracted by scientific journals around the world were submitted by Chinese academics. But it doesn't just stop at fake papers. Some universities and um, individual crime rings even go as far as to create fake journals where academics can purchase a spot for their own research paper. You can actually even buy whole written papers on websites like Taobao, which is a bit like eBay, for just a few thousand Chinese yuan, or a few hundred to a few thousand pounds. A lot of these fake papers are found out because the peer reviewer information that's provided by the writer is fake, and the majority of these papers are actually in the science category. Now, as I mentioned a bit earlier, China is especially keen to improve its global reputation in science and technology. So it makes sense that this is where the majority of fraud is taking place. Not only is there generally pressure from the state, but the university system also indirectly encourages this sort of behaviour. Unlike in the West, universities in China actually pay academics when they publish papers, the average amount being around 40,000 US dollars for publishing in a Western natural sciences journal, with some of the top prizes being as high as 165,000 US dollars. That means that academics can earn anywhere between two and seven times their salary from just one publication. Cashing in checks for short-term rewards obviously hurts the field overall, as the results published could be useless or, as mentioned, just fraudulent. One particularly high-profile case is that of Han Chunyu, who in 2016 published a paper in Nature Biotechnology stating that he had discovered how the enzyme NGAGO sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that, could be used as an alternative to the CRISPR gene editing system to create designer babies and eliminate hereditary diseases. The paper launched the microbiologist to fame. He was made vice president of the Herbey Association of Science and Technology, and the university in which he worked even made plans to build a $33 million research facility for him to lead. But within months, his fame came crashing down around him. Scholars from around the world tried and failed to replicate his results, leading Han to voluntarily retract the paper from the website. An independent investigation by the university found that although there were flaws with the experiment, Han did not intentionally mean to deceive the scientific community, and Han himself also issued an apology. Online critics voiced their displeasure and mistrust of the university's vague announcement, but to no avail. Unlike in many Western institutions, publishing faked data in China won't necessarily mean the end of your career. Han kept his job at the university. 
Academic regulators and the Chinese government are hesitant to punish fraudsters for a number of reasons. First of all, in many cases, the culprits are high-ranking academics, like in the case of Han Chunyu, and the loss of face for them could be detrimental to their reputation as well as to that of the university. This concept is known as giving face, or mianzi in Chinese, and it's still very important in most East Asian countries. To publicly shame or disagree with somebody of a high ranking, especially if their ranking is higher than yours, is seen as quite a shameful thing to do. Another reason is that it also reflects badly on the state, which itself is quite corrupt, and punishing those in academia would only throw further light on those in government who are helping those professors get ahead. While the Chinese government is trying to clean up its image, it's still failing to impart onto students and teachers alike just why cheating is immoral and what the consequences are. It may take a few more, bigger, international scandals before it really hits home and the fake papers stop pouring out of the country. So next we're going to talk about some deleted paper scandals, or the general risks of not being pro-China, as I like to think of it. So I've touched on the problem of censored and deleted papers on sensitive topics in China in a previous episode when I discussed the case of Cambridge University Press deleting papers from their Chinese site in 2017. In this episode, I want to talk about a much newer case that recently came to light during the coronavirus pandemic. In April, news reports were released stating that both Fudan University and the China University of Geosciences in Wuhan had published and then quickly deleted notices on their website stating that any academic papers dealing with COVID-19 had to undergo extra vetting before they were submitted for publication. These restrictions did not apply to papers on other subjects and were seen as a method for the Chinese government to gain control over the COVID-19 narrative, which at the time was focused on tracing the origins of the outbreak to a wet market in Wuhan. This is by no means an atypical move for the CCP, whose main objective is to control the narrative in any urgent or politically sensitive situation, especially in cases where domestic or international outcry may follow and social unrest could erupt. This reflects a broader trend in Chinese academia where papers published must be blatantly pro-China if they're to be accepted in the academic sphere, as opposed to allowing a neutral or objective paper to circulate unabated. This was the case in 2017 with the Cambridge University Press papers that were deleted from the Chinese website for containing discussions on sensitive topics such as the 1989 Tiananmen Square incident or issues surrounding Tibet. This is not dissimilar to actions the Chinese government is taking in other areas, for example, asking Apple to ban the sale of VPNs on its app store in China, or blocking access to certain articles on Western news sites. Foreign companies have little choice but to comply if they want access to the precious China market, and that extends to even small industries like academic publishing, as now China publishes more papers a year than any other country except for the United States. However, banning access for Chinese researchers just means that academic integrity will take another hit, and it will also inhibit the amount of progress Chinese academics can make, especially if they're increasingly joining the international conference circuit and publishing in international papers. 
As I mentioned earlier, in one conference I went to, some Chinese academics refused to take part in a session on Xinjiang because one speaker was talking about the current situation surrounding human rights violations. If China wants to be taken seriously, it needs to be honest with itself and allow its researchers to do the same. Finally, we're going to talk about the ethics of disclosure. Conflict of interest is an old game in research. Cases of people not disclosing ties to businesses, payments received, collaborations conducted, or ventures undertaken using university resources are everywhere. Famous cases of commercially funded research would be those such as the tobacco industry's attempt to fund data that disproved the harmful effects of smoking and then secondhand smoke from the mid 20th century onwards. Or you have the case of Coca-Cola funding a research institute at the University of Colorado to shift the focus of weight loss from calorie intake to exercise. I think one of my favourite examples is actually from another podcast called Swindled. He did an episode on the contraceptive product named Dalcon Shield. The episode is called The Contraceptive. It's a good podcast if you're into scandals and the like. If you look at modern cases of conflict of interest in academic research, you'll notice that China pops up more often than not. And in the past couple of years, with tensions heating up between China and the US, the sniffer dogs have been out in full force to uncover any instances of Chinese meddling in US affairs. But while the problem for nation states is national security, the heart of the matter for individual perpetrators is usually just money. Probably the most prominent recent case is that of researchers at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Florida. Investigations in 2018 found that the CEO of the center, Alan List, as well as around five other employees, were receiving money from the Chinese government without disclosing that income to their employers in the US. The money came from a program known as the Thousand Talents Plan. We don't need to go into too much detail, but it's basically a scheme by the Chinese State Council to lure talented foreigners, especially scientists, to do research for China. The US and Canada try to discourage people from joining wherever they can, as they think it's basically aimed at stealing trade secrets. And they're probably not too wrong, to be honest. Often, Chinese authorities will pay researchers to work on the exact same project that they're working on using funding from the US. So, in other words, researchers will be receiving double pay for a single job, which is tantamount to dealing in trade secrets, if you ask me. The Moffat case really didn't help that image of the programme either. Not only did the CEO list promise the Chinese that he would work on the Thousand Talents programme for at least two months a year while still retaining his other job, he also had secret bank accounts set up in China and allegedly received up to $71,000 for his part. The other parties involved also seemed to have received similar amounts in their Chinese bank accounts. Apparently, List had earlier held seminars for agencies like the FBI and the National Institute for Health to tell them how to protect themselves from foreign attempts to steal medical secrets from the US. I'm not sure if that was him just trying to be clever or if that was just a huge case of irony. In any case, List was forced to resign in December last year. So those are the three main areas of corruption that I wanted to talk about. A question that I have is, is there any remedy for the corruption that ails the Chinese academic world? The answer, as always, appears to be yes and no. 
I read a couple of articles that gave suggestions on how to improve corruption and accountability, and they seem to be offering pretty solid advice. One suggests that the evaluation system for scientific research be overhauled and power taken away from administrative managers, who are currently in charge of the evaluation system at most universities. They suggest giving back this evaluation system to academics, those who have specialist knowledge of the topics and whose interests are in furthering the field as opposed to department reputation. I couldn't agree with this idea more. In my opinion, the growing admin departments of universities all around the world are a hindrance rather than a help, but we'll save that conversation or rant for another day. Another paper suggests that accountability measures be put in place so that institution heads are incentivized to implement ethical policies in their universities and actually take the steps necessary to clean up their departments. They also suggest that an unbiased third party look into academic misconduct in every institution. Both of these articles acknowledge, however, that in order to truly solve the problem, the issues at the heart of academia must be dealt with first, including the publish or perish system, promotions based on numbers of publications, and just general attitudes towards plagiarism. Apart from blatant fraud, these top-down pressures also create other problems that are not explicitly corrupt, but nonetheless feel very corrupt. The race to publish as much as possible leads to the exploitation of PhD students, for example, who are forced to do administrative tasks for their supervising professors. And I'm not just talking about filling in some paperwork, I mean sacrificing their own work to do menial chores like shopping, diary keeping, and even making presentations for them. In one case, a master's student was forced to work in his supervisor's wax factory shortly before dying in an explosion in his laboratory. Other students complain of professors deliberately delaying the publication of their theses or other papers so that they can maintain their control over them. There's little recourse for these students or anyone else in the system that feels exploited. Despite the Communist Party's best efforts to rid China of its ancient hierarchy, the position of professor remains highly praised and unassailable, and often unattainable too. Many PhD students who have studied abroad are loath to return to China to become associate professors due to the high competition for promotions. Some departments in top universities have 30 to 40 associate professors competing for a single professorship, and that's only when another professor retires or dies, while the ranks of associates continue to swell. This means that despite attractive pay and other benefits, young researchers can be well into their 40s without seeing any career advancement. All jokes aside, I think for me, in the end, it really does just boil down to meaning. In my opinion, one shouldn't be getting into academia for the money or fame, but because of the opportunity to make advancements in a field and contribute something meaningful to the body of knowledge that belongs to all of mankind. By tainting this body of knowledge with faulty research and bad practices, corruption in academia does not just affect the profession, but also the progress of humanity itself. I know that sounds a bit dramatic, but if you think about it, it's kind of true. When it comes to the sciences especially, replicable results are key. When it comes to the study of history or sociology, having all the facts are important for painting an accurate picture of the truth, whatever that truth may be. In terms of the ethical side of Chinese academia, it's clear that China has to be more transparent if it wants to be dealt with on an even playing field by Western countries. 
banning local academics from accessing certain information or participating in certain events because they don't jive with the party's values isn't going to cut it in the long run if China wants information to be shared fairly across borders. Eventually, companies will tire of the tactics that the CCP has used so far, such as banning them unless they hand over trade secrets, as they did with Apple. China is a huge market, but some major players will forego the benefits if their government dictates it, like the US is trying to do now. Trying to bribe academics from around the world into shady deals without disclosing will only continue to stir up mistrust between nations. At the end of the day, Academics should be able to pursue their research freely and with passion, without worrying about keeping up with ridiculous standards that push them into corners and seem to compel them into making bad decisions. Problems of corruption afflict all academic communities, but if China is unable to bring theirs under control, it risks tearing down China's dream of becoming a prosperous, well-respected, scientific leader down altogether. So, that's it for this episode, guys. I know that the episode uploads have been a little irregular recently, but I have actually thought of a solution, at least for you guys. So if you're tired of guessing when the next episode is going to come out, you can go to the Sinobabble website at sinobabble.com and sign up to receive email alerts by subscribing. All you have to do is scroll down to the bottom of the homepage or click on the contact button and fill in the subscribe box with your name and email address. It doesn't even have to be your real name if you don't want it to be. After that, I will send you an email update whenever there's a new episode. To make it slightly more enticing, I will throw in any interesting reads on China I find, or just any fun historical facts that I can think of and and put them in the email updates as well. So if you want to subscribe, just go to sinobabble.com, go to contact us, fill in the subscribe box and wait to hear from me. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening and I hope you tune in to the next episode.